Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design and the Design Exec Club. This is episode 38 of the uh, Design Exec Club Town Hall series. I'm joined here by some awesome minds uh, coming from uh, the Euro European and UK market, which uh, EUK is actually how we like to talk about it. But we're in a new year, we're in a post-Brexit period, and they're not as joined as they were a month ago. As well as that, they've also got a, a horrific set of pandemic numbers that are happening in their different markets. So what we want to talk about is the future, not just this microcosm of where we are now, and then how do we get to a better future while we have the current circumstance that we've got here. Um, Pippa, I might throw across to you and ask you, ask you the question there about that idea of, current context of where we're up to, the vision that everyone's got for their better, their better future and a thriving economy, are we ready to start on this journey or are there some things that we've got to go get sorted out first? Well, I mean, at the moment in the UK, it's feeling very much like we are all staying at home and waiting. I mean, obviously, we're working in the construction industry, so jobs are carrying on. But um, a lot of my work is in the cultural sector and we are braced down um, and waiting. But uh, the other thing is it's a real point of kind of reflection, actually, in a time that people are, are really thinking about what the role of culture is in society which actually feels quite an exciting moment. It's that the role of museums and galleries and culture that for us as a society to bind us together and also for us to kind of reflect. And I think also the fact that we are at home um, and actually thinking about what, you know, what we need as a society to bring us together and, and the role that culture can play. So it's also a kind of very creative moment um, I would say, um, for people working in the cultural industry industry and design and actually the role of how design can really communicate some difficult ideas and some complex ideas and find ways in which we can kind of share experiences together. I mean, ultimately, too, it'll be a way in which we bring people um, and audiences back into the centre of cities um, through kind of big you know, cultural institutional buildings. Yeah. And so I, loads of different ideas all in one splurge. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but what's really interesting there is that we knew that there were various cultural programmes that were coming along and we've had some new contextual reference of, well, was what we were doing what we want to keep doing in the future? And then you've also got governments who are a little bit interrupted because they're doing other things. You know, they're a bit they're a bit busy trying to work out how to save the population and keep the economy going. That that means often that areas of the economy that were previously considered a little bit marginal and not a priority may have actually been put into a back seat. So maybe there's some funding decision delay that's in there, or are you finding that that's, uh, that's moving along at the same chaotic pace or lack of pace that it used to? I think particularly museums and galleries have had to rethink um, very nimble in the way that they're thinking about future work because obviously funding is now a real issue um, and also just practically a lot of people working have been on furlough as part of um, you know of institutions so it's also kind of there's small windows of opportunities to, to work through work at the moment. I mean, that's not the long-term projects. So I would say what's quite interesting is how the kind of creative industries um, designers have reacted to that in terms of thinking about, you know, what's the most important thing. It's like, it's good design, but it can be done in a simpler way. Maybe rethinking things, feeling too generic and commercial. And actually it's back to a kind of localization of design, thinking about craft at the forefront and, and also 
also through culture and design, how we're able to kind of bring back a, a sense of humanity and, um, you know, the hand of the maker, the, the things that we've missed being at home in front of um, a screen. So uh, some of the projects that we're working with people are kind of very quick, very fast paced, kind of re-looking at current collections, for example, within museums. So, so thinking about, we've been thinking a lot about how perhaps we're we're not thinking about kind of cladding buildings or or kind of cladding um, structures anymore. It's much more about perhaps really simple surfaces. It's like skins that might be digital or kind of graphic. It's things that um, are much more cost effective, much more sustainable and can be much more flexible. So I think it's about, it's less about you know, spend, spending a lot of money and just being very creative and nimble and reactive to the kind of the, the, the mood and society, really. I think it's, it's our kind of duty as designers to, to be much more responsive, I would say. Mm. And that's going to be interesting to see, is that a temporary state that, uh, or do those values keep moving moving through? I've noticed what's happened in, uh, in Australia since we've come out of lockdown and then people are going back. The return to normal, there's almost a desire desire to return to the previous state so that we feel like we've recovered and so that many of the things that uh, maybe weren't necessary of now people are doing them as a demonstrable statement of everything's normal and uh, some of those things happen to do with uh, the amount of materials the amount of reuse upcycling recycling those things seem to have gone to the uh, to the side and we've got a, a consumption issue there but but I'm sure we'll get to that um Simon I want to go throw across to you because you're you're in this really interesting context that you've got an understanding of both the uh, being in France and the south of France but you've also got uh, your UK, and in the last month, you're now on the wrong side of the border fence, aren't you? Or <laughs> wrong side of the channel? I I don't feel I am on the wrong side because I'm very pro Europe, and so I feel that we're. I mean, the thing is that my partner and I, um, we've been coming to France for a long time because um, James and his mother bought a house here, and she was living in it and she was renting it out and using it as a kind of chambre d'eau, et cetera. So we've had a connection with France for the last 15, 20 years. So it seems that it was almost a natural thing that we would end up living here. So James and I decided that we kind of needed to make a decision, quite a big decision as to whether we come over and set up our stall and be here permanently so that's what we've done we've applied for residency we've done all those kind of things so we're just waiting now but but at the same time we don't feel that we're yet part of the society because we're in the countryside so we're having a kind of weird experience of being in France um having been in the UK forever I you know was born and grown up in the UK. So there is still a connection to the UK, but where we're living physically is France, although we still want to kind of be able to go back and forth. So we're not able to go back to the UK because of COVID, et cetera. And we want to um, and see people and, and have that sort of, you know, connection. So this connection online is the only thing that really is working for us. So, yeah, it's a really strange sort of situation for us because we feel on on the one hand connected to the UK because of our family or history or or education but disconnected because we're in Europe and we really want to be you know in Europe in France and everything it has to offer so yeah we feel a little bit in limbo and it's it's a really odd 
feeling. And I know that, you know, my partner, James, perhaps feels more dislocated because he doesn't have this. He doesn't have connection with people around the world because of work, because he's kind of given up his work. He works in film and TV, whereas I'm very proactive in it. So this is my lifeline, really. So I think in the next few months, things will really develop and I'll I'll know where I stand at the moment I really don't I'm really quite disconnected it's a really odd experience I've never had it before and and so and you mentioned one of the aspects of the fact that you're in the country I live in a regional area for outside of Melbourne and I've been here for 20 years and I'm still an outsider so it's going to take a few weeks and, and we're the like we're the same language base there hasn't been Brexit hopefully it's faster for you but I I still walk into my butcher and he looks at me like I've seen you before but aren't you meant to be here on a weekend, not during the week? So, so yeah, so those things take a little while to get in there. But um, Julie Monk, I want to go across to you because you're in Hong Kong, but you're an American. You've had an international practice um, uh, with your design work and you're kind of not in the place where maybe your interest and soul when it comes to the politics of the country of birth and where you, where you did a large amount of your practice you, you've got a partner who's got a connection to Australia. You've got an interest in other parts of the world, but you're in Hong Kong. How, how does that context work? Oh, well, I just feel like I'm part of the global the global world that's out there, which is really amazing. Having had the wonderful opportunity to live in so many great places and see so many great things in my life, it's kind of like super cool. I think this is really a good place to be right now because of its consistency and the fact that um, the government was and the people of Hong Kong were better able to handle the pandemic. So it doesn't feel like it's been such a lockdown, even we've had our most severe lockdown experiences here, which in comparison to everyone else are pretty lightweight. But I think, Mark, what's very interesting as we start up this conversation is it feels like it's been ages since we had our last conversation in December. It feels like so much has changed over the last four weeks. And when we were talking in December, um, I remember saying, I don't know what we can do now about if the 50 years out in the future, whatever conversation we were having back then. But now, four weeks later, I do have a sense of something that we should start doing in order to lay the groundwork for what's going to be happening 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. And um, I think what we need to do is we need to start reevaluating how we think about thriving. I think we've focused for decades and for a very, very long time on the whole idea of growth. And growth was good and growth was positive. But I think what we're discovering right now is that growth isn't sustainable. And we need to start uh, coming up with a new value system to look at now and start teaching ourselves about the new value system as a way of how our rewards are, are made. Rather than being based on growth, they'd be based on fulfillment, which is a you know completely different way, probably less directly, less simply measured growth, you know, GDP growth, all the kind, you know, salary growth, house growth, whatever we're talking about, that's pretty easy to measure because it's very definable. But I think the kind of growth that we need to do, how we value that needs to change. Um, I was thinking earlier today about um, Microsoft's uh, buffet cafeteria. I think it's Microsoft. If you work for Microsoft, you can go into any one of their 80 food outlets in their Washington state property and have all of the food that you want and it doesn't cost anything unless you don't clean your plate and you pay for the food that you don't don't eat there rather than you eat. So everyone's entitled to have as much food as possible, but only the people that are kind of selfish and not thoughtful end up paying the bill at the end of the meal. And it's kind of like 
if we can switch our mindset over to that type of a mindset, we can start laying the groundwork, clear future. Um, our environment is limited. And so we've only got so many resources on our planet. We've got unlimited growth in people if we choose to do that. But they in themselves are also a very limited resource that we can really use. And if we take a look at, at what we have that's limited and start defining our success by how well we can work within that that limited circle or sphere, whatever it is, I think we can really begin to change the world in a different way just by starting now with changing our mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's interesting, in the last week, I've been going and getting quotes for solar systems to go on my roof as a project I want to get done. When I went and I, I spoke to the people they were all trying to work out how I got the smallest solar system. And I said, well, I've got a roof that's this big. Surely I should be getting something that will cover the whole roof and then my roof is contributing to our community. But that that, that, that thriving and and wasn't actually part of it, was actually what was the minimum cost to me. And so, so I think, you know, we've got lots of different values that we need to think about as far as is it growth or is it thriving? Is it that fulfilment that's in there? Will Knight, you've, you've been working on a project in uh, for Sutherland, uh, which is actually about uh, rejuvenation and helping a community to thrive again. How's that momentum going on that project there now that uh, you, you've had a lockdowns that have come in, you've had an economic cycle that's been interrupted. Is that continuing or is that a slightly paused at the moment? Well, I'm happy to say that the project overall is progressing. Um, the master plan itself is very ambitious and the stage that it's currently going through is the submission of the planning proposal. Thus, it's very kind of complex and there are lots of hoops to jump through. I think what I would say in regards to that project is that my part of it is around engagement. It's about audiences coming to uh, the content and having discussions not unlike this. And because of the complexity and the uh, nature of the project it's very difficult to pull together all the right people at the, at the same time so there is uh, momentum it's really focused on quite technical stuff at the moment but the issue-based conversations hopefully won't be too far behind okay and and it's interesting that you know and for julie what you brought up and for pepper about these different values will it seems like there's we need to actually be having both people who are in our age brackets, but also how do we go get to the younger generations? How do we find out what their vision for that future is and how do we help them thrive? How do we get their fulfilment for what that's going to be? Because it seems that they've got probably some better behaviour when it comes to the amount of resources that they're consuming in some areas, but then they've also got some shocking habits when it comes to the new mobile phone every year, which is really resource wasteful in there. Um, but then they are also working out how they not eat beef because it's producing too much um, greenhouse gases. And, and and so I think it's be really interesting to do that. And so what we're going to do in March is we're going to shift the time slot of this and we're also going to ask you to bring along somebody who isn't a designer on the call with you. They might be a younger person. They might be age, you know, an age contemporary. But I want to get the people who have other voices than the design voices to be talking about it. So I, I want that in everyone's imagination, which is we're probably also part of the problem now because we're talking in a in a relative echo chamber. How do we find out what what's the impact that we can go outside that? Are these ideas and concepts limited to us or are they likely to go further in there? Dave Constantine, I want to ask you, about the projects that you're doing in different parts of the world, 
and the momentum because, again, there's been a a handbrake going on on, uh, because of people being locked down, separated government indecision in the UK for you. But in the markets that you've been impacting and where you've been working, are they going at a similar pace? Are they showing that their needs growing or are they slowing down as other markets are? They've continued, just as background context, what Mark's talking about, the regions we're talking about are India as a whole mm-hmm. and that region and East Africa, so Malawi, uh, Uganda, Tanzania and uh, Uganda, sorry, and Kenya. And um, that's where we have our national teams as an organisation. And I've just come on, come off a meeting with, with two of our senior managers, the country directors from there. And it's, it is actually really hard to tell what's going on in those countries because what they're told by the government. So Uganda went into elections this week. And to go to and have an election in Uganda, everybody has to travel back to their either birth or home region or where they were brought up. So you can imagine the transfer of COVID potential there is massive. And yet that doesn't seem to worry the government. They haven't made any sort of changes in the, in the system for that. It appears that there isn't much COVID there, but no one really knows, not even our staff there really know whether it's whether it's rampant or whether you know the figures are right or wrong. So the numbers don't seem that bad compared with, say, South Africa, um, but they don't know whether they're just not being told or whether they're being lied to or whatever. Um, so it's really hard to tell. In terms of actual, we are still receiving orders for wheelchairs that we provide, and we've had to change through last year, change the way we obviously interact with the wheelchair users because they are it's a very hands-on, face-to-face thing when you're providing someone with a product. And so there's been a lot of support done through hundreds of phone calls, or thousands actually, and supporting people in different ways. But they're not necessarily, well, some of them are new beneficiaries, but they're not They're not getting sort of practical help. We're, hopeful, we're hoping that in some of those countries that can restart sometime through this year. So, so far, so good in a different way. But it's hard to really know what the, what the real situation is. And if you're asking me about, sorry, go on. I, go on. I was going to go back to your ship analogy about what do we need to do to change this ship before it sails or get it ready for it to sail. I think in some countries, and I'm talking about here and the US, obviously, uh, you need to change the whole senior crew. So get shot of the captain, get shot of the, 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 the officers and start all over again. And if you're talking about how we engage the young people in that project, if you like. Are we going to sail halfway around the world? And let's say we are going into that territory where we have no longitude. Take yourself back to 200, 300 years ago. That ship's got to sail and dead reckon, and it's all going to be a bit of a guesswork. So you need a crew who, and I love Julia's point about this thriving rather than growth, because as a non-economist kind of person, you just constantly hear about growth on the news you know, all your life and everything's got to grow all the time. And if we're not growing as an organization, if we're not growing as an economy, as a country or whatever, or as a business, we're, we're not, we're going to fail, you know, without growing, you're going to fail. And that's the mantra in most organizational management type of style things. Really? Do we have to grow every year? You know, I'm no economist in any way, but I just question that sometimes. And I think Julia's, you know, we, we hear a lot about, you know, Bataan and countries that measure happiness, in, instead of their economy, in terms of the population, you know, why don't more countries do that? You know, how you measure it properly is another thing. But I love that thriving thing. And if you had a, a ship full of a crew and the crew were the young people were learning how to take this ship from here to Australia or wherever, but not on GPS, not with their phones, and they got to learn how to do it the old way. And their lives depend on it, which is we're talking environment and all those kind of things. Then I think you would have a different attitude, engage the young people 
in the process of government. And right now, you know, the government here, we've got to... <laughs> and Simon, I, don't, I know you're feeling a bit in limbo, but boy... I do not want to be in this country. I really don't. And I only have a chance of one passport. Because my father never my father never got to be an Australian passport when he could have done it in the 70s. Oh, they're not everything they're made out to be. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so uh, we used to be very one. proud. Yeah, but they changed. So well, I used to be proud of mine, but not anymore. Yeah, and, that, and, and that's the whole thing. It's really changed my attitude to where I am as well. So, so Julie, we're loving this thriving thought here. And what, what's interesting to me is that if I go think about growth, which is going um, and it's unwanted in the body, we normally call that a tumour or a cancer. And so there's some point of our economic modelling that we've, through trying to just bring a growth philosophy, we've actually created what might be some economic or environmental tumours or cancers. And how, how do we avoid that? And how do we get... Definitely we want to have growth, but it's actually the thriving growth. It's the positive growth. It's not those things where we've delayed the impact of them, which is what environmental waste is. That's actually what um, if you've got a lack of inclusion of people and you're not bringing everybody into the future equally, then they're the sorts of those things that are very negative that you have to then uh, pay down in the future or, or, or have have to do some rectification there. Julie, please. Yeah, I it's already starting, which is why I find things so exciting right now. I think it's happening in a couple of different directions. We have the groundswell that's happening from the young people that are all going to come and talk to us in March because they all have opinions and cell phones. And after they've been shaming my generation, they begin to talk about what they can do. So that's one thing. But that groundswell is now affecting policy. And for one example, now that Mr. Biden, hopefully on the 20th, will become our president and begin start to affect a lot of things, they're going to raise the minimum wage in the United States to $15 an hour. Right. That's double. It's, it's historical. Oh, it's unprecedented. I forgot that's the word of the year. It's unprecedented um, in its own right. But it's, a, it's the beginning of creating a balance. And if we look at um, a lot of our environmental um, systems laws that are happening all throughout the world. LEEDS is becoming part of everyone's LEEDS approval and uh, other various accounting systems are almost becoming automatic because the laws are changing so quickly to the same level. And um, so we're seeing that happen. So I think that's going to speed up more and more, but I think it's, it's on its way. But we do need to help the next generation become strong and, and able to, to carry this forward. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Okay. We should have been doing all this time. And it, you can see the cancer right now because you can see there are a small percentage of very rich people on the top and a very vast percentage of people in need on the bottom. And that's the cancer. We can see the cancer. The cancer is happening to our environment while we're, we're just kind of burning everything out. We're not progressing forward. You know, like getting out of the Paris um, Agreement thing we'll, things like that that are all moving us backwards rather than forward so i think it's just we need to all keep pushing 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 to really propel all of these um different messages forward yeah john i want to go across to you um you know we've we've seen the work that you've been doing in the build space projects but involved with that is that there's building construction there's the imagination for people what their future workspace is going to be. There's uh, some public, uh, you know, there's a public realm interface that's in there as well. But then there's also the staff that you've got that are working for you, coming up with 
how they'd like to go see the future rather than necessarily the brief that they're getting. Is there a big difference between that tension of the ideas that are coming through in the office rather than what they're being asked to go do? Or, or are they all saying, hey, we've got the best briefs we could ever have? No, there's no disparity. I think the briefs that we're getting at the minute in terms of our clients' aspirations and the aspirations of the designers, are they're pretty, they're pretty in tune. Okay. And I think we've got quite a young, a young team, I'd say. And um, for, for quite a few years now, there's been a big focus on on our designers just focusing on sustainability. And that's whilst you know, whilst Space Invader have the last year or so really focused on sustainability, and that's a big part of our agenda now. Mm-hmm. I think you know, going back three years, that's our designers have been doing that anyway. And I think, um, and if you link that back to our clients, and is there a synergy there? You know, this what what we're seeing at the minute is. Um, and it's quite a nice uh, mantra. This is, and this comes on, on, off the back of, I guess, COVID. Is this idea of sort of building back better and building back more sustainably? I've heard that as well. I think even Joe Biden used that on on his campaign. And, and for me, that really links into what Julie was saying about fulfilment rather than growth. I think you know we've got this sort of pause in our lives at the minute where we actually we can look back and go, right, hang on, what's going on here now? How, how can we how can we do this differently? And I think. Building back better and building back more sustainably is is a is a big part of that. So I think our clients and I mean just picking on a, a particular client in a minute, and this is quite in, interesting from an investment perspective. So in fact, just to give I know we've got people from Hong Kong, people from France, but maybe just to bring that in a little bit more regionally into the UK where I am. So I'm in the north of England in Manchester and we're seeing um, investment from local government. And um, and I think this is really important and what that means. For example, you know, over the last 12 months in England, there's countless stories of big retail giants that have just fallen flat. And, and this has basically released a load of, you know, assets on the high street. And, um, and what, you know, the national government have introduced this future high street fund, which is then being distributed to local government. And actually one of the projects we're working on at the minute is converting you know, several old retail buildings and repurpose them into things like libraries, community spaces. But when you're doing that, you you when you put you think about that sustainably, you know, already by repurposing the building, you're the embedded carbon in that building, you're making use of that. You're not building something new and bring it, you know, and, and, and putting embedded carbon in something else. So that in itself is a great story sustainably. Mm-hmm. Then you know, then if you're if you're helping the client to sort of see what their sort of scope one, two, and three emissions are, creating better U-values in buildings, fitting it out with sustainable materials, and, you know, that brings communities and families back into the into local towns. That then has an effect on the local businesses around that in terms of food retailers. You know, with I mean, I think there'll be a big resurgence in hospitality in this country when we get sort of beyond you know sort of Q3 this year. So you know, from from that local investment that local government investment which is so important with a sustainable edge is all brought together by really good design that in itself is a such a positive story to come out of covid you know and this goes back to my original point you're building back more sustainably you're building back better it's not about growth for cities let's develop as many sites as we can let's actually look at the stock that we've got and develop and you know repurpose that in a sustainable way for communities, the environment, and for local businesses. Now, and I 
can honestly say, coming back to your original question, that's what my clients are thinking. And that's the way that my designers are thinking at the minute. And you know, we're really excited about working on those kind of projects. Uh, have you got like a, a sign on the door, which is like those biohazard signs that says sustainable design will happen in here so that bad clients don't walk in the front door? Or, you know, is it, <laughs> how, how do you manage to not get the clients who say, oh, we want to go do it this way and it's the worst practice? Because all of all of us who have run a practice have had the clients where you're going, are you really in think that that's what we're going to go do? How, how have you managed to do that? Or are you very, just very selective about who you take take Bruce? Um, no, I think that there's, there's actually doing the do of designing sustainably. You know, I think, um, so I think space and bedroom business, I've got two studios up and down the country. The impact I can have on scope one emissions is, is so minuscule in the, the global environment. But I specify in design, millions and millions of square feet of office space every year. And so that's where I can really have an impact in what materials I specify. You know, how can I introduce a circular economy? How can I get my clients to reuse things? But that's it, Mark. It's education because you can't go in and go, you must do this, you must do that. It's just about bringing them along the journey. You know, at certain points, have you considered this? What furniture have you got? You know, we're repurposing the buildings. Are there any petitions we can use? You know, have you thought about how, you know, your own scope, one emissions, what energy are you using? Where do you get your supplies from? Have you thought about FSC certified paper? You know, we can help clients do that. And it's not necessarily a, a lecture. It's there, it's inherent in everything we do through our stages. If the client chooses to pay attention to that, Brilliant. If you don't, they usually do. I'll just throw across to Julie again for one small thing. Remember, remember Julie, you were talking about the people's personal action they can take. If they go out for a walk, pick up a couple of pieces of trash. You know, if you see some trash. So, so I think there, John, the, the idea that you're saying, oh, I haven't got much impact. You know, Julie's got the perfect example. If you go for a walk, see some trash, pick it up. The trash got there from one person. It just is a masses together. The trash can be diminished by one person as well. So, so I think there the idea of being able to think that your the consequence of your actions needs to be amplified because whether it's Pippa and the work that she's doing um, around the uh, exhibitions and and the institutions that she's working with, or whether it's Govinda with the work that you're doing there or Julie, but all of that work actually comes into being a much bigger whole when we get in there. So I think it's important that we realise that all of us have a chance to go and actually make that impact by holding those values, which are going to be values where we tread less lightly uh, or less heavily on the planet, that we make sure that we're actually putting sustainability by stealth into projects because often it's not actually that much more, it's not expensive at all. I know one architect here in Melbourne that for the last 20 years they've been putting these incredible sustainable buildings together, but none of their clients have really asked for that level of environmental sustainability. Yeah. They've just done it as stealth because it made sense on the project that's there. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think that it's fantastic that you've got, that you're fortunate for those clients. Govinda, I'm not going to ask you to go and dump on your clients, but tell me a little bit about, you know, the, the work that you're doing. Are, are you getting the sorts of briefs that then turn around and actually let you feel like you're going in the right direction? Or if you're on a continual education process to help upgrade people's understanding of what that sustainable future might be? I think I think it's a it's a mix, really, Mark. I think that I think people are a lot more educated, actually. It's been really interesting listening to everybody's thoughts, but I think people are a bit more educated. And I think there is a real willingness finally to to move this forward. And I think you know, I've said before and people have said today that there, is, there has been a pause 
there's been a 12-month pause. And I think that's given people the opportunity to really reflect, which is a really good thing because I think what's happened is that people have educated themselves. And I think that we, we're in a world where actually that education has happened on a much bigger scale because of technology. You know, it's been open to everybody to start listening and paying attention and hearing what's going on and take responsibility as a result. You know, people are beginning to to take a bit of responsibility. I mean, we're quite fortunate in that we've had some projects come forward and and actually what what the clients are really interested in is, is taking what's been talked about over the last 12 months about the possibilities and we've talked about this a lot over you know our sessions but but actually start to explore what that means and so i think i think as designers you know everything that we touch in our lives is designed by somebody even the vaccine's been designed by somebody and and i think what what it means is that we're we're at a point where we have a responsibility as designers in everything that we do within the built environment particularly to, to help that education process as we go. So it should be intrinsic in what we're doing and the way that we communicate should be part of our language when we're working with clients. And I think it is for a lot of us, you know, that's how we operate without really uh, thinking about it. But there is there is the beginnings, you know, people are beginning to, to talk to us. And as I say, we've been appointed by one of our big global companies that we're working with to start the process of the redefining, the recreating, the rethinking. And I think that you have to have clients that are open to it. And I think they are more open to it because nobody, nobody must make the mistake. I say passionately, nobody must make the mistake of going backwards. We've got to move forward and and take the learnings that that this, you know, the world has clearly been trying to teach us. And I think, I think people are open to that. And I think sustainability and the circular economy is going to be a fundamental part of our language when we start having those communications. Yeah, and I couldn't couldn't agree more with you, which is we we do need to make sure that we're stepping forward, but often what we need to have there is a, a pathfinder or a vision of what that of what that future is, hence heading down the idea of some values-based better future concepts. Because otherwise what I mean, I think might... I think it'll be slow, Mark. I think it'll be a really slow process. And I think there'll be if you imagine, you know, just popping into my head now, if you imagine the whole idea of a charity shop, it's about taking stuff forward, reinventing itself, bringing it back, taking it forward. And I think even when we start designing these new spaces, it's going to be budget driven, slow moving. Let's see if that works. Does that actually give us what we want? Because it is, it's an experimentation time, I think. And in that, we can start rebuilding the values. Because I think you're absolutely right about the fact that growth shouldn't be just about the bottom line and about financials. It should be about people growth, the world growth, the planet growth. You know, we need to redefine how we think about the word growth. Mm. And, and, you know, and we've covered there that growth can also be a toxic growth like a tumour or a cancer as well as, as a productive side there. Um, David Perry, thanks for joining us. I'm glad that you were able to go make the call and uh, we understand that you, you got held up. Tell me a little bit in body shop terms because as we've been talking here about, you know, are we thinking about thriving or are we thinking about growth and are we doing sustainable, uh, sustainably or, are we, or, you know, do we have some future costs that we have from the things that we're doing. You've been doing some incredible projects and the very ethos of the company goes back to the idea of how do we actually tread lightly on the planet. So how do you go across an organisation that's been treading lightly on the planet for so long 
And how do you keep trading like they on the planet in the future? Is there incremental opportunities for you or are there big delta changes that you're still yet to get to? Thanks, Mark, for the introduction. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fine. Lots to say on the subject. And again, sorry for, for turning up so late. Um, just picking up on the last thing that was said there about um, the profit, you know, and just, not just for bottom line financially, but um, for people and the planet, you know, this this is the fundamental um, point about the B Corp certification that um, Body Shop managed to achieve uh, just over a year, year and a half ago now, where we're, we're now a triple bottom line company. So our actual existence, you know, and if you look at our um, company uh, description in company's house in the UK, it's now written that we exist not just to um, deliver benefit to shareholders, which was previously was the, uh, the, the, the description, it's to actually now deliver benefit to the planet and to, to people. Um, and uh, our, our, our new owners, Natura and Co, are also, you know, one of the world's biggest B Corps. And Aesop, our sister brand, became um, a B Corp um, very recently as well. So we're on that journey of about really, yes, we've been treading lightly, as you say. There's still so much more to do on on, on every front of the, 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 those um, those that, that B Corp objective and even further. And for us, you know. We're putting to sort of talk about short term and what we're doing. Um, we're we're putting a huge amount of money into the refill stations that we're going to have across the whole of our stores portfolio. Um, we're pushing um, to do as many as seven hundred stores over the next two years, which is essentially either with part of the new shop fit having uh, in stores, you know, these refill stations, we can go in, take your bottle back, get a new, you know, shampoo, shower gel, whatever, hand, hand wash, hand sanitizers, um, quite popular at the moment. But, um, you know, that was something that we did launch previously um, through Anita Roddick, but, you know, it went away. There was the, there was the sort of age of quality and people were worried about refilling and the the, the company's liability about filling up a, 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 a consumer bottle which might not be clean and then what happens if they put that on their face and, you know, all of the implications of that. But, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, risk there that's needed to be uh, overcome. But, you know, fundamentally, as part of the design of our new stores, and Mark, if you're in, I'm not sure where you're based, actually, but we've just opened in uh, Emporium in Australia, a huge store with our new concepts. There's... Um, there's three in the UK now, so for those on the call, when stores reopen, we've got uh, the Bull Ring, we've got uh, Westfield, London, and uh, our store on Oxford Street, which have all got this new concept and refill stations where you can go. But we need it across the whole portfolio. So that's that's the first thing we're doing is um, this year really pushing um, how, how we manage that. And the new store shop fits using EcoPly, sustainable materials, upcycled materials for the the design um so there's lots of elements around that that um are making our stores more sustainable in terms of the shop fit but really the biggest impact is about how consumers are using our products you know raising awareness about their use you know reducing water use when you're using our products all of those things you know there's there's so many subjects still to 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 go into there and so, so the good news is I'm near the Emporium. So I'll, I'll, next week I'm in, in Melbourne City. I'll go and have a look at that. 
So I'm interested in the refuel stations because we've seen Loop uh, in the US and in many other outlets in, or places in the world doing a container um, washing and recycling process. Is this refill of your container as you bring it into the store, whatever state it is, uh, you know, the old-fashioned refill, or is it a container return program that gives people the current bottle with the current branding and then it goes back through a washing and, and upcycling process? No, it's, it's the first. So it's um, you go back with your bottle that you bought previously um, and, and you refill it um, and take that one away. Okay. But, yeah, there's, there's a huge drive, and we're seeing it in uh, certainly UK supermarkets, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, all working on um, projects to do these systems. And we, we've also seen H&M and Ikea, you may have seen that on your side, that uh, are actually now reselling second-hand goods mm -hmm. as well, which is another huge step forward. You know, H&M especially um, because of the impact there on planet of uh, landfill and unused clothing. So the, 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 there's, the, I, th I think the time that we're in with, with COVID, people have had the time to think, stop and think, you know, as Govinda just said, you know, stop and think about what we're doing, how we're treating the planet. Some of those great news stories that came out after the first lockdowns about nature thriving again, you know, people have really had the chance to think about what they buy, how they buy it. And I think certainly from the body shop's perspective, we're, we're really well placed to for the future because of what we stand for on those sustainability values. And hopefully all of our competitors and other retailers will start to do things like H&M and Ikea are doing, you know, and I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, and I think uh, if we see, you know, look at your sister brand there in uh, Aesop, those brown bottles that Aesop brought in are now pervasive everywhere and, you know, it's set a standard. So, so we will see that coming in there. So what I find interesting there is that you've given us a story which is actually about how do we actually thrive through. So there's a little bit of stepping back to some values that we may have previously had. It isn't just how do we sell more bottles to people and how do we get things to move off the shelf as fast as we can. It's how do we actually get it so it's going to meet the customer values that they want to consume less they love the product, but they want to consume less, which, which I think is great. Every time I go to a supermarket and I have to go buy a new container when I think I wish I could refill it, that irks me. And now I know that there's some other options there. So Pippa, help me out here with the uh, with the exhibition and displays world. How, how often does something get to move? In Australia, we have a very big touring circuit. So it'll go into one institution and it's designed that it will actually move right around the country as a touring show. Uh, that's what happens with most of the exhibitions that are done here. Is that the same in the UK or are they um, uh, up for a period of time and in, the, in the, you know, the skip at the end of the exhibition or do they stay around and keep having a life? Because as built structures, they probably could do that. I mean, when it's interesting, we're working with both like temporary quick shows that are incredibly wasteful historically. Mm. So they're coming for a short length of time or it's an, you know, it's an installation that's there to kind of, you know, it's a particular story or narrative that's being discussed uh, versus, you know, kind of permanent where there's also a need for the displays to be, to be able to be flexible because there's also institutions quite often, um, you know, swap and there's a, they, they need to be able to kind of share their collections and be able to, uh, you know, allow other people to kind of show works in, in different places. So there's both flexibility within the permanent world, but also 
um, trying to create less wasteful um, and more sustainable solutions for temporary shows. I mean, I think that, you know, the discussions in, in our clients who uh, where we're doing kind of long term permanent solutions is about how they can stay relevant, actually. And, um, you know, at a time where perhaps the role of, of culture is shifting a little bit in terms of, you know, we, we kind of, you know, well-being and us valuing people and, you know, as we're talking about the next generation and in a way how we can keep relevant. So, so yeah, we've been thinking a lot about, um, and I think, you know, going back to what I was saying before in terms of this idea of kind of decladding and thinking about, I think I think our appetite for everything not being quite so perfect and enjoying imperfections is also kind of there now. So you know things don't need to be have that kind of sheen of plastic. Instead, you know we've been working with, for example, exhibitions that we make out of cardboard and paper, so that they're they're, they're never going to be perfect. You know the paper moves and it puckers, mm-hmm. but actually there's a kind of joy in that. Um, and then at the end, everything can be recycled rather than this idea that there's a skip outside and everything gets put in it. Yeah, um, I, saw, I saw in the New York Design Awards a fantastic project, which was a, it was a sculpture park and they'd worked on an exhibition that allowed augmented reality on supplied iPads that were, in, they were at the venue. So people were walking around and all of the adornment that was around the sculpture to go give it a new interpretation and new meaning was happening on the iPad. And it was a local project. And it was interesting to go say, that's a new take. You know, they've created a space, but it's actually a virtual space or an augmented space. They're they're doing what we used to have to go do always with physical things that they've done in a digital way. So I thought that was really good. Uh, Simon, I want to ask you a question because your expertise in your world is actually helping people to understand how to get their their CV and their profile right. You're trying to, you know, make sure they can present themselves in the best way. Are there particular ways that somebody can say that they've got those values about thriving or rather than just growth or that they want to make sure there's sustainability in every part of what they're doing and social inclusion? Or are we yet to go get language that had that fits in there have we got the nomenclature or are we still at that not to get to that point i don't think we are at that point i think it can be demonstrated in what people are involved in um not just what they're saying and i think that not everyone is at the same level i think what's happened because of covid that i've noticed that people are developing things at different rates and it's great coming together and discussing and finding out what people are thinking. But then there seems to be a lot of activity in silos, in separation. And I think that is a difficulty. So when I speak to people about their careers or what they're doing, they sometimes feel isolated and that, you know, their ideas might be a bit wild or or somebody else might not be interested in them. But then you realise that actually I've spoken to five people talking about the same thing and it's about bringing those people together. So I I think that um, it's difficult to say that there's one pattern of thought or one train of, uh, of thinking at the moment. And people are also struggling in different ways because um, of what's happened in the world in as much as there's a definite lack of reduction in confidence. I really noticed that. I think that formats and forums like this really help to bring people together and realise, oh, yes, I'm going through that as well. And I've just spoken to somebody before this um, meeting who is a designer that 
is trying really hard to kind of get a message out there. And we had a really good chat about where she's come from in terms of her background. And I said, oh, you know, I'm and what I'm doing is trying to give in the next few months people uh, an opportunity to have more visibility about their work. So I'm going to be featuring different designers from different backgrounds and emerging designers, et cetera. And I think that's one way of uh, making sure people don't get left out. But there is no there is no one train of thought. There is no one way of, of making sure that everyone's up to speed. And I think that is the, the problem. And I don't know when that's going to change. I think it will take a lot of time. And I think... The more discussions there are like this, the better, so that people feel they're not alone. And I think it's also what's interesting about this situation is that it has brought together people that haven't met before like this. And and then you get lots of different ideas. So I think that in itself is a positive thing. And that's what I've found talking to people who are you know, I'm trying to help them with their CVs, their portfolios, and they're seeing things in a different way. Because I think people were kind of a little bit stuck as to, oh, yes, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. This is how your career goes. I think people realizing, oh, no, there's lots of different pathways. There's lots of different routes to get from, you know, one to another. And I'm the same. I'm, I've realized that even doing this, because just over a year ago, I was looking for a role. I had 11 interviews. I had 11 rejections. And then realized that I should just try and work for myself again. And it was that lesson that has brought me to this stage. And all the things that I have done, and I've done a lot of different things in my life, I always thought, oh, that's a negative way of having a career because I've jumped around from this to that to that. And now it makes all sense. It completely makes sense. All the things I've done are really come together and I can put them in as, and I can take parts of what I've done and whether it's in recruitment or being a designer or running a studio and, and, and I'm enjoying it. And that's what I'm trying to pass on to the people that I deal with or, or speak to and yep. say, it doesn't matter if you've done 15 different things. It's There's going to be something you've learned from everything. I hope that kind of helps. No, that, that, look, that makes a lot of sense. And Julie, you've, you know, over the last decades, you've employed a lot of people. So you must have a thought here about how people present themselves. I have a thought here, but it's a very personal thought. Okay, please. <laughs> and that is that I'm very, very concerned about equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I try to figure out a way that I could become more involved in a demonstrative way in helping be part of the solution to all of this. So I spent a lot of time doing some research on the internet, thank God for the internet, and um, ended up joining an organization called NOMA, which was established in Detroit, Michigan, which is the uh, National Organization of Minority Architects. It's an amazing organization. It's been around for 50 years. Not many people know, even know about it. They've got an incredible, rich history and it's quite amazing. So that that is now on my resume and it's now distinguishes the fact that it's something that's important to me. I also, um, because I'm taking a gap year and I wanted to learn some things, I took um, some certification courses in inclusive leadership and learned a lot. So that's now on my resume as well, but that's a way to find a way to really demonstrate yep. in your resume that you are passionate and dedicated towards certain parts of our industry, certain parts of our social culture. Yeah. And, and look, at, I think that's really useful because what you've done there is you've put out a couple more tent poles that then people can string together what that means for you. But you've made a statement, which is these things are available to me. We, we see that the same with the awards. People who have actually been recognised an award, they get a hallmark that says, 
I did something that you may want to check, you know, whether I was actually serving the cups of tea on the project or whether I was the principal on the project, but I was involved with the project. And it, and it helps out there. And I, I think I saw David smile there. We've probably all employed somebody that you thought was the driver of the project and they were making the cups of tea. And, and so that, that's always a bit, a bit of a problem there. But what it does is it says this person has these aspirations. This is what's available to them. So I think that's really, really important that there. Will Knight, I want to go and actually, because we're getting very close to um, wrapping up here, your design dialogue network, I, I participated in that and I've seen the people over the last 12 months as they've been going through and talking about how design promotion, how cultural institutions are working. And it would seem to me that there was possibly the largest uh, say reallocation of marketing budgets and promotional budgets with exhibitions uh, going, uh, the trade shows have disappeared off the horizon and people working out what's next. That must create a lot of indecision and flux that's happening there. Is that starting to settle down or do, do you think 2021 we're going to see people with a whole different playbook? Uh, yeah, I think we are, Mark. I, I think, you know, the psychology of beginning the year uh, and instantly being put into relatively long-term lockdown, I think the general consensus is that we'll be in this place for about three months at the, at the least. And then when we are able to kind of leave our homes, because that's really the situation we find ourselves in, it will be quite gradual re-entry uh, into the kind of outside world as well. So there's a lot about environments. There's a lot about space. Uh, really interesting to hear David talking about, you know, the kind of priorities for his his portfolio and how that brand is kind of responding. But it is really going to be very experiential. How do you actually put products in front of people? How do you get people to engage? Is there... Uh, broadcast or is it more interactive content that you're you're generating you know the, the the switch into the kind of virtual space is going to be much more permanent so i think there's more investment in those platforms um but at the same time it's just really wonderful to hear pippa talk about the fact that there's there's a greater tolerance you know we don't need to have everything uh, bright and shiny finished and i think that's that's a consequence not least of this sort of experience you know we're all peering into each other's personal lives and you know it was very awkward to begin with but we are able to present ourselves as we truly are uh, and hopefully express express those thoughts and to be able to share them and i think you know we we're in the northern hemisphere we have sort of long uh, cold period where there's a kind of natural inclination to kind of look inwards anyway i think the question for us always how, how do we kind of come back out how does that rebirth uh, kind of look and how much of it can we embrace in terms of the kind of positive change that we've discussed here yeah and you know so there's a there's a mixture of diversity of design subject matter. There's diversity on where, as uh, Julie was mentioned there, minority architects. Where, you know, that's another dimension there about diversity because of your origins. And we need to make sure that we've got all of those different conversations going around to go cross-pollinate, that we're in there to make sure we've got that. And we're going to focus on that over the next, uh, over the coming year to make sure that we're getting as much of a mix there. But also because we do this every week in different countries, I would recommend panellists go watch the other sessions as well because you're going to get a, a, a snapshot of what's happening in the Australian market, what's happening in Asia and what's happening in the US, similar as people are watching you here. Because I think if, if you've got, as Will had suggested, the next three months that you're likely to be in lockdown, 
you want to make sure that you're using that time to give you the best platform so that you can um, be like a, a slingshot when you come out of lockdown and actually work out how do you attack that uh, those new freedoms, those that new growth opportunity, but not growth which is toxic, but growth which is actually going to be for a better future there. So, so I think that's really useful. Guys, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to be like an auctioneer. Is there anybody that's got a last comment that I've missed out on? Anybody? Put your hand up and we'll let no, Looks like we're there. All right. So I'm going to go call this uh, call this a close here. Thank you so much for your time. I'm always humbled to go get access to your minds and, and have ideas challenged and work out what's going on there. So um, uh, viewers, we'll be back in a week's time. We're heading off to the US and we're recording the session just after the inauguration has taken place. I have no idea what's going to happen, so wait till we see that one. Um, and uh, for the panellists here, thank you so much. I'm so humbled. And uh, we'll see you in a month's time. Cheerio.